I invite you to take your Bibles. If you don't have one, you can slip your hand up and uh, Jody or Austin from our strike team can put one in your hands. Um, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. It's page 652 of these Bibles that they're handing out. And so we're going to read the, the word of the Lord together this morning, starting in verse 23 and reading through verse 28 of Hebrews chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. May this word bear fruit in our lives by the Holy Spirit, even this morning. Amen. Now, before we get to Moses, who's the 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 character we're looking at in this text, a little bit of the, the context of how we get to Moses. Uh, Joseph, whom we studied last week, was used by God not only to save just his, his family, but the entire nation. If you remember, Joseph and his family go to Egypt during this time of... Uh, well, Joseph goes ahead of his family, and his family joins him during a time of famine that they might be preserved. And while they're there, God blesses them. And as Barrett preached last week, Joseph, by faith, believing God, tells his sons, not now, Joseph says, but, but someday and soon, God will lead you as, God's, as his people out of Egypt back to this land that God has given us. He's going to be with you and he'll go before you. And so we read in Exodus chapter 1 that Joseph has now died. And Pharaoh, who knew Joseph, has died. And the Pharaoh that is now in power does not know Joseph. Is not acquainted in a familiar and friendly way with the role that Joseph played in the life of his family, in the life of Egypt. And he did not like the fact that the Hebrew people, that Joseph's people were strong and multiplying and prosperous. In fact, he was, he was threatened by it, that foreigners in their land would prosper and become strong. So in fear and arrogance, Pharaoh orders the murder of all the newborn Hebrew boys. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Pharaoh's answer to the growing number of God's people was to cut off an entire generation of Hebrew men, limiting that generation from being able to multiply. And so the writer of Hebrews sets up this story of Moses by highlighting the faith of his parents. Parents, if you, if you uh, have children or you're, you're prepping to have children, you're making names of, of what, uh, lists of names you'd like to name your children. Here's a couple good ones for you. Moses' dad's name was Amram. That's a pretty sweet name. And, and his mother's name is Yochebed. Or Yochebed, kind of transliterated into English. But that one's a little 
more awkward, but put that in the girl column name. I'm sure no one will question you. But Moses, to get to Moses, you need to go through Moses' parents, clearly, like both biologically and in the story. And Hebrews highlights the faith of his parents. They, they acted in faith in order to protect him. And it says that they, they concealed him. He, they hid him for three months, which if you've spent any time at all with a newborn, is a miracle in and of itself. Because babies are loud. Gus was singing in the fourth row while Charlie was giving announcements. And I'm like, go Gus. It's the second time in, in, I've preached now and I picked on you, Michael. I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll hear about it later. No. Um, but, but seriously, for three months, his parents kept him hidden. I, I don't know if they dressed him up like a little girl or if they just kind of kept him hidden in the back room or, or what it was. But God provides a way for his parents to keep him hidden so that he's not killed. And then uh, after three months, Moses' mother and sister put him in a basket in the river among the reeds. And the daughter of Pharaoh finds him there. And when she does, looks down at, at Moses' sister, who's been watching from a distance, and says, go find me a Hebrew woman to nurse this child. So who does Miriam go and find? But her and Moses' his mother. So, so here's a little glimpse of, we don't have time to get into really in great depth that part of Moses' story, but here's a little glimpse of God's kindness. In this grand narrative of redemption, God uses Moses' own mother to nurture and care for him before he's raised in Pharaoh's home. That he might be nurtured and cared for by his own mother, who was living in defiance of Pharaoh's orders, and would be able to not only be raised and have that, just that comfort and, and love of being raised by your own mother, but to hear the promises of God as a newborn. Like you have to know those stories are being told in their home. And so our, our, our working definition of faith in this series is this. Faith is confidence that God will do all that he's promised to do. And in Moses, the writer of Hebrews is kind of turning up the heat a little bit because faith is causing Moses now to act to, to do something. In this case, the snapshot we're given from this text is that Moses is looking at all that's offered to him if he were to remain a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, a grandson, if you will, of the most powerful person on the planet. But because of his faith, he saw all that was offered to him and said, this is short-term. This is temporary and fleeting compared to the promise of the one true God, because God's promises last forever. This will fade and disappear, but there's something else that lasts forever. So Moses, Hebrews tells us, was looking to a greater reward. So faith is doing something in the life of the one who has faith. Faith is fueling action, and that's our big idea this morning, because the promises of God are eternal, we act in faith because we too are looking to a greater reward. And just a few simple points from this text. Point number one, faith helps us see clearly and act accordingly. Now, I've always loved baseball. Mike, here's my sports analogy for the day. I've, I've always been a baseball fan for as long as, as I live. Ben asked me the other day in the car, Dad, which, what sport do you like watching the most? I'm like, baseball. Playing the most? 
baseball. I just, I love it. Some people think it's boring. I, I think the minutia of the strategy and all the, it's fantastic. You can strike out 70% of the time and make the Hall of Fame. That seems remarkable to me, right? I love baseball. And so I've been for a long time, I've coached uh, Little League and T-ball and, and, and coach pitch. And, and this year, our, our season is now over. Uh, we took second place. Our, our team took second place in the end of the year tournament for 10-year-olds. Way to go. Wisegram Metal Fabricators 10U baseball team, right? But, um, but just about every kid all year long has struggled at the plate, right? The kids now are pitching to each other. The, the 10-year-old kids are better pitchers than they were last year as nine years old. And almost every kid has struggled at the plate hitting the ball at some point in the season. They either close their eyes when they swing, or as they swing, here's, here's the, uh, if you're listening, you can't hear this, but as they swing, you can't see it, they pull their heads, and they're looking over here, or they're looking at the third base coach rather than where the ball just was. So we've been using the simple phrase all year long. Ben, do you know what phrase I'm talking about? What? There's a lot of phrases we use in baseball. Right. We've been using this one. Fail, I failed the test. Uh, clearly, I wasn't clear enough all season long. See the ball, hit the ball. We've said that, right? Yeah, okay. Shrugs his shoulders. See the ball, hit the ball, right? You can't, if you don't see the ball, you can't hit it. If you close your eyes when you swing, you may occasionally hit a foul ball, but you're probably not going to consistently hit. Watch the ball all the way as it comes in until the bat connects with the ball, more likely to hit. See the ball, hit the ball. And I think that's what's happening here is Moses is seeing clearly. He's, he's rightly evaluating his situation. And because he can see clearly, he's taking some swings. He's making some decisions. And he's able to connect. So look at verse 24 again. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There's a few things here. Moses is choosing against some things, and he's choosing for some things. He's choosing against uh, power and privilege. He's choosing against being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All that was afforded to him as a as a person of worth in the court of the Pharaoh, he's saying, no, no, I'm choosing against that. He, it says he refused it. And that refusal is an active choice. Moses chooses against what Hebrews calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. Instead, choosing to be counted among his own people who were slaves. They were low class in the land of Egypt. And Moses chooses against the wealth and the treasures available to him. Instead, esteeming or judging the reproach of Christ as more valuable. We'll talk about what that means here in a second. Scholars think that Moses may have been as old as 40 years old when he left Egypt and went into the wilderness before the burning bush. He saw the mistreatment of God's people, and Exodus tells us he actually intervened when a soldier was mistreating a slave, and he intervened in such a way that he killed the man and then buried him in the sand. It's a good way to get rid of your problems, right? Find a sand pile, bury him. 
So I don't know if it was if there was some level of fear. Maybe Moses was just conflicted between what he knew his heritage to be and the life he was living in Pharaoh's court. We, we don't fully know the motivation. But Moses set all that aside. All that was available to him as a, as a prince, if you will. He set all that aside. And Hebrew says Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And this isn't a, a passive ghosting. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But I'm sure there's some of you in the room who you just didn't call that person back. You didn't actively deny them. You didn't actively turn down the date or, or, or reject someone. You just lost the number. Whoops. But that's not this. This isn't just a passive like, I'm just going to pretend I didn't hear that. No, it says that he refused. This is a... Uh, this is a define the relationship. This is Moses looking what was available to him square in the eye and saying, it's not me, it's you. I, I don't want to do this. It's an active refusal. Second, it says that in verse 25 that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I, I don't know. Maybe he looked around and, and kind of like from a dream said, what am I doing here? Have you ever done that? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're looking around and like, how did I get here? Maybe that's what it was like for Moses. Either way, this is not only staying in Egypt in this case would not just be rejecting his heritage, but would be rejecting God's people. If he didn't stand up for the one who was mistreated, he'd be rejecting God's people and by extension rejecting the promise. Remember what God said through Joseph. God will lead you out of this place. This isn't your home. So Moses chose to be counted among the slaves rather than to continue living his royalty in this kingdom. And in verse 26, Hebrews tells us that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. A couple of things here. First, he considered. This wasn't a rash emotional response. It's Maybe you like, uh, I enjoy the, the cartoonized version of the story of the Exodus, the Prince of Egypt. I, I do enjoy it. They take some liberties. One of those liberties is like, Moses kills the guy and then runs away. Like, whoops. Shoot. Bye. And then he leaves. That's not what Hebrews tells us. It wasn't just a rash decision. There was something going on here in the life of Moses that caused him to consider, this is what Egypt offers there's got to be something else. He, he made an ultimate pros and cons list, if you will. Here's all that Egypt has to offer me. Here's my list of all the good stuff if I stay. And on this side, reproach. Reproach is basically a, if you treat someone else with reproach, you look down upon them. But not in like pity and compassion. More like pitiful, deplorable. Kind of sounds like, Ugh. Reproach. And he looked at all that Egypt offered on the pros side, and the con side was reproach, and he's like, no, I, I want that. Because, second, it says that the reproach that he considered was the reproach of Christ. Now, now hold on a second. You might be thinking, I'm thinking, Moses lived generations before Jesus. The eternal Son of God incarnated in the flesh, 
had not happened yet. So how is this possible? Like Abraham before him, all of Moses' trusting, in fact, as we'll continue to read in Hebrews chapter 11, all of their trusting in God to fulfill his promise was a trusting in the person who would fulfill that promise, Jesus. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes, their answer in him, including these. So just because Jesus had not yet come in the flesh doesn't detract from the reality that that Christ is present with his people at all times in all places. He always has been and always will be the head of his people. Ephesians 1 tells us, Paul says, that we, all of his people, are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. There's, There's a sense of Christ is always the head of his people. So Moses was looking forward in time. And though he could not say his name yet, he was looking forward and trusting in the completed work of Christ. And it says in verse 26, he was looking to the reward. See, when Christ died and was buried and rose again, victorious over death and hell, it's like it sent a ripple. Like when you drop a rock in a pond, it's like it sent a ripple back through history and confirmed the faith of everyone who said, I trust God to fulfill his promise. I trust him to fulfill his promise. And Christ's death and resurrection confirmed that confession of faith all throughout time. And for us, it, that, that ripple, if you will, ripples forward to all those who have yet to believe, which is then us, who then look and say, I now believe in what Christ has done. I trust in God to fulfill his promise. Moses looked at the offerings of the world and compared them to the reward of being found in the company of the one true God. And he said, it's, it's not even close. See, when Moses saw clearly, his choice was obvious. See the ball, hit the ball. So the question is, what does your pros and cons list look like? Do do we look at what it costs to follow Jesus? The, The confession of our dependency on God's word. That we out loud, as followers of Jesus, say, this word that he's given us, this revelation of himself, guides Everything. It is the instruction for all of our lives and godliness, no matter the the social pressure. The the willingness of the work of the Spirit in us to give up self-promotion. That we're called to, to, to no longer be okay just living in gray areas when it comes to ethics at work or in the classroom. That this is the price we pay, if you will, walking and living in Christ Jesus? Do we look at the reproach of Christ as worth more than what can be offered to us here? Which leads us to point two. Faith overcomes fear. Look at verse 27. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I want to be really clear. Please don't hear me saying that this is easy. On the contrary, Moses chose the harder path. Following Jesus is not necessarily the easy path. So what was it that caused Moses to not be afraid of one of the most powerful men on earth at the time? And how does that help us? Because the reality is, fear is a legitimate thing. And it isn't good Bible teaching or good pastoring to just tell you to stop being afraid. 
I've tried that as a parent. It, it doesn't work to just say, stop feeling that way. You all know that. Sometimes you try to tell yourselves, well, just stop it. <laughs> How well does that work for you? But the question we have to ask is, so what's causing it? What's then the source of that fear? See, I think Moses could stare down Pharaoh. After leaving Egypt, he could walk back into Pharaoh's court because he had already spent time in the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 3, we see that God calls out to Moses from a burning bush. Moses didn't know it was coming, but God had set an appointment for Moses. And Egypt 3, or excuse me, Exodus 3 tells us the angel of the Lord spoke to him because God had heard the cries of his people and he was going to send Moses to deliver them out. And Moses had a handful of excuses ready to go. He didn't know that this was coming, but the way he answers, if you read through Exodus 3 and 4, it's almost as if, I know something's going to happen, so I'm going to have my answers to God ready. Moses asks in verse 11, but who am I? I'm a nobody. I am literally a nobody. Why would you send me? God says, I'll, but I will be with you. And then Moses says, but what if the people ask about who sent me? And God says, tell them the I am sent you. And that's where God tells Moses, gives Moses his personal name, Yahweh. Tell them Yahweh sent you, the one true God. And then God tells him all that he will do to deliver uh, Israel from Egypt. He'll give him the words to say. And Moses says, but, but, but maybe, what if they don't listen to me? Or, or what if they don't believe me? And so God gives him signs to use as proof. And Moses says, but God, I'm not, I'm not eloquent. I have a speech problem. I don't talk good. And God says, who made man's mouth? Who causes someone to speak or not speak or to hear or to be deaf? Who, who, who did that? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will be your mouth and teach you what you should speak. And still, Moses one more time says, Oh Lord, oh my Lord, please send somebody else. At this point, you might be thinking, why is this guy listed in the faith chapter? Because I'm reading Exodus 3 and 4, and he's got a lot of excuses. In fact, he sounds a little bit like me. And Exodus 4, 14 actually tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses as he persisted. So God says, take your brother Aaron with you. He talks good. Take your brother and your staff and go to Egypt. I'll be with you. See, Moses had left Egypt and was now returning back to Egypt and will leave again. And this time when he leaves, he's going to take all of uh, Israel with him. And so Moses goes and stands before Pharaoh, as Hebrews tells us, without fear. He was not afraid of the anger of Pharaoh because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Which kind of sounds like a contradiction, Right? Seeing him who is invisible. The glorious throne room of the Pharaoh with all of its trappings and beauty and splendor and majesty was nothing to Moses compared to the dusty holy ground where he met with God. 
His heart was moved from fear to fearlessness because he got enough of a glimpse of God to go, okay, I I trust him. You see, not always, but I think often fear for us, fear is just the other side of the coin to pride. Pride in disguise. Now, not always. Hear me out. But, but pride says, I can do this on my own. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my fate. And we sound a little bit like Pharaoh himself of the day. I am the morning and the evening star. My solar system revolves around me. And the antidote to that is, of course, humility. It's a confession that says, I, I'm actually not God. I'm not the center of the universe, my universe, or anyone else's, for that matter, and neither are you. And I think for us, often, fear is the mask that covers the face of pride. It says, I I don't trust that God actually does hold the stars in the sky. I I don't trust that he actually has numbered every hair on my head and knows me that intimately. I I don't know that I trust that he... Uh, sees the smallest sparrow fall on the ground somewhere and cares more for me. I, I don't know that I do. Ultimately, in our fear, we say, I, I don't believe you, God. Therefore, I'll, I'll just deal with it myself. And we either revert to working harder, and just gritting through it, or we get buried under our own Anxieties, the weight of our own anxieties. Now, now please hear me. Not all fear is pride. And not all anxiety and worry is sinful. But far too often, we, for us, we, we are mastered by our fears rather than considering who God is, what he has said. Instead of looking to who we are now in Christ Jesus, instead of running to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, as Hebrews 4 tells us, we just trust ourselves. And we do so, we often do so because it's, it's, it's hard to see what we can't see. It's easier to trust in what we can see, and sometimes what we can see is terrifying. So, so let me ask, what, what are the terrifying things in front of you? The things that overwhelm you, the things that seem to crush you, and what is your default response? Do you tend to just fight through? You're going to willpower your way through this to the end? That's one side we can fall off of. Or do you find yourself more often overwhelmed by your inability and you just sit crushed and defeated underneath the weight of it? Did you catch God's response to Moses? See, Moses throws but after but after but to God. And God doesn't just pat Moses in the back and pet his hair and say, you're right, Moses. This is going to be hard. Here's a cup of coffee. Just be your best, you. Do your best. God doesn't say that. God says, I'll be with you. I will give you the words. I will provide the proof. I'm God. You're not God. Now go. (laughs) So are there situations even today where the Lord might be gently reminding you, hey, I I love you enough to remind you that you aren't God. 
That, that this situation isn't yours to control or to manage. But take heart. I am with you there. And I will provide what you need there. As Sam Storm said about Abraham, I quoted this a couple weeks ago, faith doesn't declare the circumstances to be non-existent. Faith simply declares that God is not shackled by them as we are. We don't have to pretend that our fears and anxieties and the terrifying things in front of us don't exist. Oh, they exist. But faith recognizes, but God is not hindered by those things, even if I am. Faith then enables us to work in the midst of our fear, to to overcome it, I think is what the phrase would be. By faith, we run to the throne of grace because we desperately need his grace and his provision. So you might be thinking, okay, great. Now I see why Moses is listed here. But but my faith is often weak. I sound like the, the but, but, but Moses, not the stand before Pharaoh, fearless Moses. My, my faith is weak. My faith is small. I should not be listed amongst these people in Hebrews 11. I should be with Moses back there in Exodus. And I would say that the confidence of our faith isn't in the strength of our faith, but in the object of our faith. That's our last point today, is that the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith, is the important thing. So after Moses goes back to Egypt and tells Pharaoh to let God's people go, Pharaoh says, no, I don't think so. His heart is hard. And so God proceeds to bring plagues on the land. In fact, he brings ten of them. Frogs and locusts that kill the crops and boils on people's skin that affected everybody and the livestock die and the uh, river turns to blood for a while. It's, you know, real happy times in the land of Egypt. And the whole time, Pharaoh says, no. No, you can't, you can't scare me off from this. He's, he digs in his, his heels. And on the tenth and final plague, God gives them, has one condition. God, through Moses, tells the people, the angel of death is going to pass through the land. And every firstborn son in every home will be killed, unless... They have the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, sprinkled over the doorposts and the lintels of the house. Then, if the blood is there, the angel of death will pass over that house, and that firstborn son will be spared. And Exodus 12 tells us that when the angel of death came, all those whose doorposts were sprinkled with the blood of the lamb were spared, and that those who weren't Their sons were killed, including Pharaoh's own son. And uh, Exodus 12 tells us there was a great cry in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh was broken. He summoned Moses and Aaron and said, "Just, just go. Take your people and go. Hebrews 11.28 says, By faith he, speaking of Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. D.A. Carson, when talking about this first Passover, tells a story. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell it like, like he will tell it. Um, there's actually a link to the sermon clip that he gave at a conference. It's really, really good. We'll post it on our Facebook page. Um, but he supposes that there's two Jewish families that night. Each one preparing the lamb. One father is confident that God will keep his promise. That his family, is, his son is secure. The other father is nervous. 
he, he puts the blood on the, on the doorposts, but he's nervous. He's, he'll be glad when the night is finally over. And then Carson asks, when the angel of death passes over, which one loses his son? Well, the answer, of course, is neither, Carson says, because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the lamb. It doesn't matter if, if one person's like, I trust it 100%, and so I'm going to act accordingly. And one person says, I think God is going to be faithful, and I'm nervous. I'm still going to follow what he's telling me, but I'm nervous. God fulfills that promise. Because the trust is not in the intensity or the strength of the faith. The trust is in the object of the faith. Moses believed that the promise of God was enough, that the blood of the Lamb was enough. So by faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. Carson goes on and says, it's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. The blood of the Lamb was enough for Moses. The smallest drop of blood sprinkled on the doorpost was enough to save the firstborn in the household. And the smallest drop of the blood of the Lamb of God is enough to save you and me. See, we are inconsistent and unbalanced creatures, aren't we? We are pushed from all sides. We are hot and cold. We pinball from one extreme to the other. Because we bear the curse of sin in all of our parts. Not just in our bodies, which we feel and we deal with, but in our minds and our emotions as well. But our hope is simple. What can wash away our sin? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb. So by faith, Moses sprinkled the blood of the lamb. And by faith, we sprinkle, so to speak. We trust the blood of the lamb. We'll partake in just a few minutes, believing again that Christ's blood and body broken for us is enough. One drop or one gallon does the same. As 1 John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. And I think John's walking in the light here can be a parallel passage to walking by faith. And if we, as we are walking by faith... We have fellowship with one another. We are counted as God's people together. And, John says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's not the depth or the strength or the intensity of our faith, but the object. It's Jesus. Moses was looking to something he couldn't see with his physical eyes, but when he could see enough, he could step out in faith. As we close, in Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching in parables. And he gives this one to his disciples. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a, a treasure buried in a field. A man finds it, covers it back up, goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy the field. See, when by God's grace we can see with clear eyes, only then can we rightly evaluate the worth of things. We see how great our need is for Christ. We see the temporary nature of all that this world has to offer. And we see how great His grace is, how undeserved it is. And so we can more readily sell all that we have to obtain that. 
because the promises of God last forever. So we fight sin, not for its own sake, but because Christ is better. We lean into hard things and we step out of places of comfort and we go to the Central African Republic to translate God's word. Why? Because Christ is better. And because we know the one who has purchased us and washed us clean by his own blood and is preparing for us compared to the the hardest of possible things that we will walk through, that what is being prepared for us is a glory that this stuff is not even worth comparing to. The glory that is being prepared and to be revealed in us is so much greater, it's not even close. Like Moses, we are looking through Christ at the greatest reward. So may God grow our faith in him and may he grow our ability to trust him more and more because his promises are eternal. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in our distress and in our wanderings and in our fear, you don't leave us helpless, but you meet us Would you help us make a good confession even today? That you are enough. That you are better. Would you work in us, Holy Spirit, uh, maybe a surrender for the first time or a fresh surrender of confession. Encourage our hearts as we come to the communion table that we might be nourished, spiritually encouraged and built up as we proclaim as an act of faith that your blood, your death for us was enough. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.